Well, again, good morning to you. We're delighted that you're here. I knew there'd be several out today. As uh, Clint prayed, there are several down in New, uh, New Orleans, Orlando, uh, for the Lads to Leaders Leaderettes Convention. I don't have a breakdown of uh, all the awards that our children that participated uh, earned, but uh, it's not all about the competition. It is all about the growth, but it is nice to be rewarded for, for their efforts. So we look forward to, to sharing more details uh, when they get home, Lord willing, later this evening. Uh, but we're, we're proud of them, but we're excited that you're here this morning and pray that our time will, will be God-glorifying but also uplifting uh, to each of you. There is no, nothing more important to a building than its foundation. There, there's nothing more important to a person's life than the foundation upon we, which we build it. There's nothing more important to our faith than the foundation upon which it rests. We've been studying about once a month foundations of faith. Uh, these are the uh, doctrines that make Christianity Christian Christianity. Uh, a, a, a quote, excuse me, that Tucker shared with us several a few months ago says this: "The fundamentals of the faith are the defining beliefs that make Christians Christian. The beliefs that if we were to set aside, we would no longer be recognizably Christian. What are those foundations of faith that make Christians Christian? Well, Scott Adair has identified seven. Some of these core doctrines that make Christianity, Christianity. And we're going to zoom in on number three, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Stafford North uh, wrote these words about the uniqueness of Christianity. Only the Christian religion comes to the world saying, the master we serve is divine. He lived in heaven he came to earth to die as a sinless sacrifice for those who have sinned. He was buried in a new tomb. On the third day, he was raised from the dead, never to die again. And he has gone to prepare a place where all of us can live after we, like him, are raised from the dead. Again, Christianity is unique in these claims. Are they true? Is it true, for example, that, that Jesus rose from the dead? In 1 Corinthians 15, I invite you to look that passage up, the passage that Matt read for us. The Apostle Paul is addressing some Christians who apparently were either doubting or even rejecting the idea of the resurrection of Jesus or the resurrection itself. And so he writes this masterpiece, if you will, by inspiration about the, res about the resurrection. And he says to reject the resurrection is to reject really the heart of the gospel. And so I want us to look at this text again for a few moments to see what Paul says about the heart of the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus. He begins with, number one, the truth of Jesus' resurrection. Again, uh, quoting the passage that, that Matt read for us earlier. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, by which also you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast 
that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. What I want to underscore in that text is it's by the gospel, by the good news, that we are saved. And in that, we're, we're to understand that on our own, we could never save ourselves. We have this condition of sin that separates us from God. It's, that, it's a barrier that separates us. And there's nothing that you and I can do in and of ourselves to, to cross that barrier, to, to cross that bridge by our own efforts to get to God. It's only by the gospel that we are saved. Paul would say in another place, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is God's power to save. What is the gospel? What is the good news? Keep reading. For I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. The basic facts of the gospel are the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That doctrine of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is the foundation of our faith as Christians. It's what makes Christianity, Christianity, that Jesus died for our sins, he was buried, and he rose again the third day. This is the price that God paid for our salvation. This is how God bridges the gap. He's the one that built the bridge, if you will, for us to get back to God. And it, again, it wasn't through our efforts, but what he supplied, and what he supplied was his son who died for us so that we can be reconciled to God and live eternally with him. Did Christ really rise from the dead? Again, the Apostle Paul is, is addressing this issue with these Christians who were doubting or even rejecting this idea. And so he goes on to give some witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. And the first witness that I want to note with you is that he cites the scriptures. And he points back to the Old Testament scriptures as a witness to the resurrection of Jesus. He rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And again, that's a reference to the Old Testament. Let me give you one example. In a messianic psalm, David says this, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. David says that, describing his own circumstance, but yet we read in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, that Peter explains that David was really speaking of Jesus and predicting that he that Jesus would not remain in the grave. Notice with me, Acts 2, 29. Men and brethren, Peter preaches, let me speak freely to you of the, of the patriarch David that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to, to him that of the fruit of his body, that is a descendant of his, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh, flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. So to this predominantly Jewish audience, he's citing scriptures that they knew. David said this, 
And he couldn't have been speaking of himself because he's still, his tomb is still with us. He was foretelling, he was giving a prophecy about Jesus, how that Jesus would die and be buried, but the tomb couldn't hold him. He'd be raised from the dead. So the, the scriptures are a witness. But you notice at the end of that statement, Peter says, we are all witnesses. We, meaning the apostles. And so we go back to what the apostle Paul said as he talks about witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. Verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus was seen by Cephas, or Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remain in the present, but some have fallen asleep, some have died. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So Paul says, there are witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. There are people who saw him alive and they knew him. We knew him. And so we can attest that he is in fact risen. He rose from the dead. Hundreds of people claim to have seen Jesus after his, after his death. But their testimony is subject to the same tests that any testimony is subject to. Stafford North, whom I quoted earlier, talked about the time when he was summoned for jury duty. And he was told, he and the other jurors were told that they were to test the witnesses. Test the witnesses. Answer questions such as this in regards to those witnesses. Were they in position to observe what they saw? Could they have actually seen what they are testifying to? Would they get personal gain from the position they affirmed? If so, then, then their testimony is, is uh, questionable. Number three, have they communicated that, their testimony clearly? And number four, was the testimony available to be tested? And again, this is in a, a, an American court. But these jurors were told, test the witnesses. Well, Paul gives these... Oh, hundreds of witnesses, and he's challenging them, test, test this information. And over 500 brethren saw him, most of which are still living. They are available if you want to talk with them directly. The witnesses that Paul identifies met all of these tests that Stafford North shared. They were in position to observe the resurrection of Jesus because they were in Jerusalem just days after, in fact, three days after Jesus was crucified. They made their testimony public in the very place where the event took place. And so if there was anyone who could give evidence to the contrary, it could have easily been presented, but it wasn't. Skeptics could ask these witnesses what they saw, even over 500 of them, most of which were still living. And these eyewitnesses had nothing Again, nothing to gain by their testimony. In fact, by their testimony that they had seen Jesus alive, instead of gain, they lost. Some of them, 
even lost their lives because of their testimony. So that was not a motive of something to gain personally by their testimony. Not only that, their very lives were greatly changed because of this belief. They gave up their past religion. Many of them gave up friends. Many of them had to be separated from their families when they didn't believe. Some had to change their jobs. Some gave up their money. And again, some even gave up their, their lives. So every test imaginable that you could give to a witness, these eyewitnesses that Paul cites passed those tests. They were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Therefore, they are believable. And I would add another witness to, to these witnesses, the scriptures, and to these eyewitnesses of those who since that time have tested the evidence, have examined the evidence closely. There's a man, a British journalist by the name of Frank Morrison several years ago who was not a believer. He did not believe in Bible miracles. And so he did an intense study to, to try to disprove Bible miracles, namely the resurrection. And so he began to study the Bible and other sources about, from the, about the first century and his conclusion was that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. And he wrote a book, some of you may have read it, it's entitled, Who Moved the Stone? Who Moved the Stone? Morrison found that the moved stone, the empty tomb, the, the changed lives, the existence of the church, and the weakness of opposing evidence all led to one inevitable conclusion that Jesus rose from the dead. Paul's emphasis in this great resurrection chapter is that the resurrection is a fact and it's to be believed, it's to be embraced, but it's not just that. He goes on to talk about the importance of Christ's resurrection. Notice with me beginning with verse 12. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how does some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? And so he follows that, that line of thinking. If there is no resurrection, then here are the consequences. If there is no resurrection, verse 13, of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. So the resurrection of Jesus certifies the gospel. If it is not true, then nothing about the gospel can be believed. He goes on to say, for if the dead do not rise... Verse 16, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, it's empty, it's vain. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Notice that. Your faith is empty, it's meaningless. If Christ is not risen, you're still in your sins. It wasn't just enough that Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried. But the gospel was not complete until Jesus rose from the dead. And if Christ is not risen, Paul says, then we're still caught in sin. We still have that barrier 
between us and God. And not only that, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, your Christian loved ones, you'll never see them again. They have perished. There's no hope of a future resurrection. All that are the consequences if Christ is not risen. Verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. If Christ didn't rise from the dead the third day, and if that's where we've been placing our hope and it isn't true, then we are most to be pitied. But then he changes the tone in verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ is risen from the dead. He's become the first fruits. First fruits is an Old Testament term. It was used to describe the, the first fruits that would be offered to God from, from a harvest. They were, they were to give the best and the first back to God who had blessed them with an abundant harvest. And those first fruits were the first of many more to be harvested. Even so, Christ, His resurrection from the dead, He has become the first fruits. He is the first of more to be raised. Because He was raised from the dead, we too will be raised from the dead if we've if we have passed away when the Lord comes again. So our response to such a teaching should not only be to believe it, to embrace it, but to celebrate that fact. Especially because, number three, Paul talks about the hope of Christ's resurrection. The hope that it gives. It's not just a doctrine to, to believe or even a fact to celebrate. It's a truth that gives us hope. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Verse 20. Verse 21. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all will be made alive. For each one in his own order, the Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ. At his coming. So he's, he's directing their attention ahead to when Christ comes again. And because Christ rose from the dead, it means that when Jesus comes again, the dead in Christ will, will be raised as well. And the idea is there's that hope of, of a reunion, that hope of Jesus taking his children, God's children, home with him to heaven. Peter echoes this idea. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, that is reserved in heaven for you. It's a living hope because we have a living Savior. And when you read the word hope here, don't think about wishful thinking. I hope. We use that, that term hope sometimes and we're just hoping that something will come true, but we don't know if it will or not. When we read the Bible word hope, especially in these texts, 
is talking about two aspects. Desire plus expectation. Desire is something to be desired and certainly to be raised to, to live eternally with, with God in heaven, with Jesus in heaven, is something that we desire greatly. To depart and be with Christ, Paul says, is far, far better. There's desire, but there's also expectation. It's not a, a pie-in-the-sky kind of hope. It's a hope that's based on the promises of God. It's a hope that's based on the fact that not only did Jesus die for our sins and he, he was buried, but that he rose again. And because he rose again, that gives us the assurance, that, that hope, that desire plus expectation that we too will be raised in the last day. So early one Sunday morning outside Jerusalem, after Jesus was crucified, some women came to his tomb to anoint his body. And they found that the stone had been rolled away. And the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know you're looking for Jesus who's been crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, just as he said. Come see the place where he was lying. And I want you to think about that open tomb and what it means. And let me summarize it by pointing out three wonderful truths that come from this open tomb. Just as that stone was rolled away and that tomb was found open, even so Jesus opened up the way for, for you and for me to be reconciled to God. He opened up the way, again, through his death for our sins, his burial, and then being raised from the grave. He opened up the way to God, the way of reconciliation. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that open tomb should cause us to, to reflect and rejoice in that fact that because that tomb was open, that way is open for me to be reconciled with God. Number two, that open tomb shows us that Jesus opened up the way to a new life for you and for me. A new life. Not like the old, but a new life. Paul would write to Christians in Rome these words, Romans 6, verse 17. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. You were slaves to sin. And I want to suggest that we have this image of, of being enclosed in a tomb. We were slaves to sin with no hope of being released. But, he says, you obeyed that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. You obeyed that form of doctrine that released you from this tomb that sin places us in. What was that form of doctrine? You go back a little bit early in Romans 6 and you read about that form of doctrine. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. You see, the doctrine is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The core facts of the good news, the gospel. I like the way that World Video Bible School illustrates it with these charts about that doctrine. 
This is the gospel enacted. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But then we obey that form of doctrine. When we obey that form of that doctrine, then we are released from this tomb in which sin places us. That form of doctrine is our own death to sin, our own burial in the watery grave of baptism. And when we're raised from that watery grave, we're raised to walk in newness of life. It's a new life. Our past sins are washed away. It's a new life because it's in Christ. And in Christ we have all the spiritual blessings that God has made available. Including continual forgiveness as we continue to follow Jesus as a way of life. We have the family of God in which we were born into when we, were, when we obeyed that form of doctrine. We have the peace that passes all understanding. We have the spirit that intercedes for us. And on and on we go with all those spiritual blessings. And that open tomb reminds us that, that Jesus opened up the way for us to have a new life with all these wonderful spiritual blessings that Jesus has made available. And one of those blessings of this new life is that that open tomb tells us that Jesus opened up the way of a new life that's filled with hope. That's filled with hope. Hope is a precious commodity. Let me give you a painful example. When a doctor says there is no hope. And some of you have heard those words spoken of a family member, there is no hope. And you know the pain that's associated with that, that there's no hope in their estimation that your loved one, your friend is going to, that their condition is going to improve, that they're likely going to pass from this life. Contrast that, however, with the hope that we have as Christians. That even if we hear the doctors say that about ourselves or our loved ones in Christ. If we're able, we could respond with these words. I may not have hope in this life, but I've got hope in the next. And it's a desire and it's an expectation that is just as sure as this world is. It is just as sure as the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And it's so sure that I'm convicted that when, when I close my eyes in death as a child of God, that when they awake, when, I, when they open in the resurrection, I'm going to see my Savior and I'm going to home, to an eternal home where there will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor pain, no more crying, for all those things will have been done away. And that kind of hope, folks, empowers us in the present. I think it's been beautifully stated in a song by Bill and Gloria Gaither. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I... I know he holds the future and life is worth a living just because he lives.
May it not just be a doctrine, a biblical doctrine that we um, memorize. May it be a doctrine, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that that inspires us and that gives us hope and that helps us face the challenges of today because we know that because of Jesus, there's a blessed tomorrow that awaits. Do you have that hope? Jesus died and was buried and rose again so that you can have that hope. And it's available if you'll just surrender to him on his terms. That you will, if you haven't already, reenact the gospel through your death to sin, through your burial in the watery grave of baptism so that you can be raised in newness of life because the blood of Jesus has washed away your sins. If you're ready to do that this morning, we'd love to assist you. If you need the prayers of the church this morning, we'd love to pray with you and for you. But if you're subject to the invitation of Jesus, please come right now as we stand and sing.